This morning we're in uh, our series in Luke, and uh, Luke has taken a little bit lesser stance behind me. Now he looks over from the side now. He's not hovering over, you know, breathing down my neck anymore. Uh, But he's over here reminding us that we are in the book of Luke chapter 7, by the way, chapter 7. And in this this section we're going to look at today, the first 17 verses of chapter 7, there's two stories. And the one story is about the centurion, and the other story is about the widow in this little village called Nain. And as Jesus, or as, as Luke begins to unfold for us who Jesus is, and as he's writing this account for Theophilus, you know, he says at the beginning of his letter, and then in the book of Acts, it's his second book, and it's his second writing to Theophilus, he's laying out who is this guy, Jesus? Who is he? Did we really miss, did we really miss the Messiah? And he picks these two, um, if you use the terms of the scholars, pericopes. How many of you ever heard of the term pericope? Yeah, exactly. Me neither. But this is like a section of Scripture, is a pericope. So as he selects these two <clears throat> pericopes, he has decided that these events in the story of Jesus are significant to reveal to us who Jesus is. So that's kind of exciting. And so the wrong question to ask when we look at this passage would be, what can Jesus do for me? But the right question, I think, to ask is, what can Jesus do? What can Jesus do? Because what Jesus can do reveals who he is. And what he can do for me is up to him, not me. We can read all through the New Testament and see what Jesus did for us, uh, but it's not about us. So as we get into it, I've got two quick screens I want to show you. The first one, with all authority and power, Jesus shows compassion. Jesus, who has all power and authority, he decides to show compassion. I wonder if there's somebody in here this morning who is looking to get ahead at their job. They're looking to get that next position in their company, that next step up in their career. Maybe they're, they're, they're going for something more than what they have right now. And the question would be, why? Why do you want that? Why do you want a higher position? Why do you want the next rung on the upward mobility ladder? Is it, you know, to make more money? Is it to get more stuff? Is it to just have that name recognition, you know, that, that uh, boss or supervisor or CEO or COO, whatever it is? The motive. Why do we want power and authority? And Jesus shows us. In the Gospels, Jesus puts on a clinic for us about how to wield our power and authority. And the way Jesus did it is that he used it for others to serve. He used his power and authority for others to serve. Now, if you haven't noticed, that is not the way it is in our culture. Power and authority is not to be used to serve others. It's to be used to give us what we deserve. I mean, everything that you deserve, right? If you buy this, this will give you the lifestyle you deserve. If you get this, this will, this will provide for you what you deserve. So uh, why did Jesus use his power and authority? For others, to serve others. So we empower the powerless. Jesus says in the kingdom, that's what you do. You empower the powerless. You deliver the captive. You speak for the voiceless. You care for the orphan and for the widow. 
Then you accept the foreigner and the outcast. And these are things that uh, we don't really do in our culture in every area uh, and at every stage. Uh, And one of the things that we do on Wednesday nights, which is pretty cool, is we do a lot of these things. We do empower the powerless. We give young people an opportunity to have power, to have the Word of God coming into their lives, to have people influencing their lives, to have relationships that they might not otherwise have. We speak for the voiceless. We speak for the kids and for the people in Newton that otherwise they wouldn't have a voice in the church. They wouldn't have a voice to receive truth from the Word of God. Widows, orphans, the foreigners, the outcasts, these are how, this is how Jesus used his power. In, in the eyes of Jesus, everyone's on this, it really is a level playing field, right? Everybody's in the same spot. He doesn't see people up here and down here. He sees that society puts people down here, and he looks down and he sees them. So in this first 10 verses, Jesus and the centurion, this guy who was a a Roman leader who led a 100 men, he had some authority and he had some influence and he had some power. And he was in Capernaum. When Jesus had finished saying all this, by the way, at the end of chapter 6, it was where Jesus said, um, uh, the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like the one who builds his house on a rock. And the storms come, and the winds blow, and the waves crash against the house, and the house doesn't go down. That's the one who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. So when he had finished saying, literally, when he had filled the ears of all the people with the things that he wanted them to know, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus. So tuck that little phrase back in your mind for a minute. He heard of Jesus. How would the centurion have heard of Jesus? And sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. So he sent elders of the Jews. So he's a centurion, but he takes the Jewish leaders in Capernaum, and he sends them off to Jesus to ask him to come and heal his servant. Now, this is interesting. Verses 4 and 5 describe how those elders viewed what they were doing. They came to Jesus. They pleaded earnestly with him. Here's what they said. This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and he has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Now, it's interesting how they see it. They view this guy as somebody who deserves the favor of Jesus because this is how we think, right? I mean, this guy had done good things for them. He had done good works. He was a good guy. He had served them. Therefore, in their mind, he deserved Jesus' favor. He had earned it. And Jesus should come and pay him his reward. That was in their mind. But look what the centurion thinks. He was not, Jesus was not far from the house. When the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, By the way, this is the first time Lord is used in the book of Luke. Here it is. Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. Say the word. See, he understood who he was. Here's a a humble guy. 
Here's a, a man of, of, as we're going to see, a man of faith who's humble. And he understands. He gets Jesus. He understands Jesus' position. Because it says in verse 8, he says, For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I, I understand this authority thing. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And, and that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and, and he does it. So I understand that. So Jesus, I know that you have authority. I know that you have power. And so just say the word. You don't even have to come, and my servant will be healed. Verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. Hey, it's pretty good when the Son of God is amazed with you, isn't it? This is a good day for this guy, right? I mean, for how many of us was, would Jesus like be amazed when he looked at us? Well, it, Let's go on in the text here. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. I have not found such great faith. He says, hey, I've, I've been to Nazareth. I've been, I've been around the area. I've been teaching. I've been doing miracles. The people in Israel they don't get me like this guy gets me. This guy understands who I am. This guy understands what I'm about. This guy understands that I'm here and that I have authority and power, and he understands that all I have to do is say the word. This guy has faith. And Luke is showing us, as he writes this account, then he's going to write the story of the church, our story in the book of Acts, he understands that Jesus is coming not just for the Jewish people, not just for the people of Israel, but he's coming for people that are even outside. He's coming for the Gentiles. And and Jesus highlights a Gentile by saying, I have now found such faith, great faith, even in Israel as I found with this guy. So you get to the end of this pericope, (laughs) this section, the men who had been sent returned to the house, uh, they found the servant well. So the miracle is kind of a side issue. And the focus here is on the faith that the man has. So what do we notice here in this passage? The humility of the centurion. You know, humility is an ingredient of faith. It's an ingredient of faith. If you don't have humility, if you're not humble but you're proud, you're thinking too much about yourself and you're not focused in who God is, who you aren't and who God is. So humility is a part of faith. We notice the faith of the centurion, his understanding of Jesus' authority. He understands who Jesus is. Now, when was the last time you or I prayed, and maybe for you it was just this morning, but that you prayed and you just knew, you just knew. All you got to do is just say the word, God, and you could do it. And, and I know that you'll do it. I just know that you're going to, I'm praying in faith, believing. Didn't Remember Jesus said, when you pray, believe that you'll receive whatever you ask in prayer and you'll receive it. You know, we, we're so literal, right? We're so Western. We're so linear and literal. Well, then whatever I ask for, it, he'll, that's, how the, that's how the formula works. A plus B equals C, therefore D plus E, and, and we, we're so literal, And Jesus is just saying, no, what I'm telling you to do is believe. Believe. Believe who I am and what I can do. Believe who the Father is that he sent me. 
Believe the spirit that I'm going to send you is going to live in you. Believe. That's the focus is believe, not, oh, what's the formula for getting what I want? See, we so often focus there, and God is focused on the faith. And so this guy's understanding of Jesus' authority was very noticeable. And then his outsider status was noticeable, the fact that he was not a Jew, and Jesus' commendation and approval of him. So it gives me two questions. Number one, do we believe in and believe Jesus as much as the centurion did? He not only believed in Jesus, but he believed Jesus. He believed him. He believed that if he said, be healed, that this guy would be healed. And he believed in Jesus because he knew about this authority thing, and he knew that Jesus had that kind of authority. Now, he might have not have known everything that we now know about Jesus, but he knew enough that he, as much as he could, he had faith, he believed in Jesus. And my question is, do we have faith like him? I mean, We've got, so, we've got so much more knowledge than he did, so much more at our fingertips to understand about God. Is it helping our faith? Is it really helping us to believe, to believe God? And, and do we only believe God about like, okay, God, I believe you, therefore I want this to happen. And do we connect our belief to something necessarily happening or God doing something? Or is our belief in God, who he is, and what he can do, and just leave, then leave the rest of that up to him? That when we pray, we believe, knowing that God is going to do the right thing. But he wants our faith in him more than what we want out of him. So let's go back to that phrase, um, he heard about Jesus. He heard about Jesus. So this morning, we heard Jen talk about this girl who heard about Jesus. She's heard about Jesus here, and she got a Bible, and she was excited about it. And you know what? She didn't know she was not supposed to be excited about it. She didn't know that she wasn't supposed to go to church, go to school and take her Bible and like be all excited and show everybody. She didn't know that that's not supposed to be cool, because as far as she's concerned, it's cool. And you know what? It is cool. It's really cool. So in 1971, in this little town in western New York, an eight-year-old kid named Jeff, you can guess where this is going, walks into this 12 by 60 mobile home in this little mobile home park. And it's the, it's the home of the missionary pastor who's all of 23 years old. And I sit down at this round table in this little tiny how big can a kitchen be in a 12 by 60? But I'm eight years old. I think it's just fine. I think it's all great. These little wooden chairs, you know, around this little table. And it's time to study the Bible. And they're trying to plant a church in this town. And these people are kind of stumbling and fumbling and trying to do what they're doing, knowing now, you know, now what I know. But God was using them in the lives of people because God uses his people and they don't have to have it all together for God to use them. And so I get to this table, and, and the guy's going to teach us in the, in the Sunday school hour, right before the worship service in his living room with the little wooden folded, folding chairs, and I don't have a Bible. So he gets up, and he walks into the front bedroom, and he gets this book, and he brings it out to me. Now, I, I, I didn't have a Bible. At, at eight years old, I'd never had a Bible at home, and I'd never held a Bible to open a Bible. And he gave me this one. This is the Bible right here. And he 
scribbled out his name, and he said, you write your name right there. And it's just an old pew Bible. Worse yet, it's the King James. Can you imagine? Can you imagine God used the King James in my life? Amen, right? And I had a Bible. And even though it says Norman Holtz in it, uh, Norman's still out. He's still out there somewhere doing God's work. I had a Bible, eight years old. Now, what, what he didn't know that day was sitting around that little table was this, you know, this little kid. If anybody would have looked at me and my family and my life at that time, they would have said, not a chance. This poor kid, not a chance. There's no... The only Christian influence I had were the people in that place. But they gave me a Bible, and I took it home, and I remember being in my bedroom and pulling out the dresser from the wall and getting the little stool from the bathroom and putting it behind the dresser and standing up behind the dresser and putting my Bible on it and reading. And I knew that the pastor would read something, and then he would say something about what he read. So I opened up to Psalm 100 because I thought that was pretty cool. It's the only 100th chapter in the Bible. So I opened up, and I read it. And I looked up, and I knew I was supposed to say something, but I didn't have anything to say. I didn't know what to say, so I read another, and I read a few, and then after a while, I, I bored myself. I got down, I put the dresser back up against the wall, and that was the end of that. But I knew at that age that I wanted to be a pastor. So when we have kids in here on Wednesday nights, there's kids from here and there. There's kids from this home and that home. There's kids from this socioeconomic spot to that. There's kids from all different... Hey, we have no idea. We have no idea. In 40, in 40 years, what God is going to do through the lives of some of these kids, why? Because we're a perfect church? No. Because you're so highly equipped and skilled to do children's ministry? No. No, but because we love them and we share Jesus with them, and we try to tell them about Jesus and his love for them. And then God does the rest. God takes the rest. So, so now, uh, 40, 47 years later, I have kids, and I have married kids, and they, they're believers, and they have kids, and they're teaching their kids well, little Bible songs and that God loves them. Why? Because those people in that place cared enough to, to share Jesus with a little kid. So how many of you in here serve on Wednesday nights? Could you raise your hand? Just see how many of you. Okay, a lot of you are here on Wednesday nights. Just know that what you're doing on Wednesday nights really matters. And when, when I'm, I came to Community Heights, and I'm not thinking so much about the next couple years. I'm thinking about what can we do together here that in 20 and 30 and 40 years is going to mean a different life and a different family than people have today. I'm thinking about the kids that they're not even born yet, but in 10 or 20 years, the people at this place are going to be sharing the gospel into their lives. They're going to be showing the love of Jesus to them, and people's lives are going to change. Families are going to change. People's eternity will change. Why? Because of what we're doing. It's not about today. What we're doing now is not about today. It's about tomorrow. And again, what we do in this place is not, it's not for us. It's for the people that aren't here yet. Because it was, if it was for us, we don't have to improve anything. I mean, we just like it just the way it is. But when we make a change, what's it going to be for? It's not going to be for us. It's to reach people for Jesus so that 
little kids and, and families and relationships can be restored and made whole and people can be brought to Jesus. That's so important. And, and here, Jesus is talking to this centurion. Why? Because he rolls into town and he's so remarkable that people are remarking about him all over town and the word gets to this guy. And this guy sends for Jesus. And he is, his faith is, is shown because He's good to the people. He's, uh, he builds their synagogue for them. He loves their nation. He's a guy whose faith is evidenced through his works. And his life is changed by the people of God, and he's introduced to the Messiah of those people, and he believes him. And he believes him enough to see his, his uh, servant healed. So, Jesus and the widow is in the next few verses, and it says, soon afterwards, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a large crowd went with him. So Jesus had a large crowd, and as he approached the town gate, a dead person was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. So widows back then had to be cared for by their adult sons, and this was the only son, and this son has died, and so it presents a pathetic scene of this widow who really is not going to have any support. And so the, the town people are coming around her, and they're carrying, and you've seen it on the news when there's some kind of attack, and you see in the Middle East, it's like right away, they're putting these people on a piece of wood, and they're carrying them down, uh, down the, 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 the road, down the street, and everybody's crowded around, and they're going to bury them. And back then, they would, they would clean off the body, they would wrap the body in cloths, they would put it on a aboard and take it to be buried within 24 hours. And so this is a, a pathetic scene of a widow who is about to bury her only son. And it says, a large crowd from the town was with her. So you got this large crowd with the widow, and you got this large crowd with Jesus, and have you heard the term divine appointment? Right? There's this divine appointment that this widow and her son are having with Jesus. And there are these two crowds are coming together. So now Jesus has two crowds, two crowds of people that are right there watching what he's about to do. And it says in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he was moved with compassion. His heart went out to her and he said, don't cry. So now he's not being summoned He's not being asked to come and heal somebody. He approaches the widow. And it's, excuse me, she's in the process of a funeral procession, Jesus. She's, she's mourning. Don't tell her not to cry. Walk in her shoes and know why she's crying. But it says his heart went out to her. And he said, don't cry. You know, he's just being himself and he's modeling what kingdom life is like when he does this in verse 14. Then he went up and he touched the bier they were carrying him on, this, this platform. And the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, just get up. Get up. We can't appreciate it. Wait till you get to your next funeral. I was just at a funeral on Thursday, and we've been to too many of them in the last month or two. But when you're at one, just imagine that somebody comes in and like, whoa, whoa, stop, stop. You know, the pallbearers are carrying the box to the, to the, the grave and they're going across and, oh, stop, stop. And somebody lifts it up and says, get up. 
what kind of a sick joke, right, would that really be? But it says, he said, young man, I say to you, get up. The dead man sat up and began to talk. Now, where my mind goes is like, what did he say? I mean, what would you say? Like, you know how some people, they wake up, they wake up and they immediately start talking about their dream and they start talking about somebody. And I suppose you know somebody that just talks so much all the time. As soon as they wake up, they're talking. This guy, like, gets resuscitated from death and he starts talking. Now, I just would like to know, but Luke doesn't tell us. Then why does he say he began to talk? He could just say he sat up and opened his eyes. But he began to talk and Jesus gave him back to his mother. This recalls the work of Elijah. You know, throughout Luke, we've been seeing that they're looking at Jesus and they're saying, you're some kind of a prophet. This guy, God has come and has visited us. He's a prophet. Elijah, back in 1 Kings 18, he raised a widow's son. But when he did it, he had to pray, and he had to pray to God in heaven, and then he put himself over the little little boy and and, and did all this stuff, and, and the kid came back to life. Jesus didn't have to do any of that. He just did what the centurion said. He just said the word. He said the word, and the kid got up. And just like Elijah gave the widow her son back, Jesus gave him back his life. And look what happens, verse 16. They were all filled with awe. Pastor Jason and I were talking about this this past week. He uses the uh, English Standard Version, the ESV, and that version is for people that like, can't read as well. So it's like English Standard. So that's why Pastor Jason has to use the, e, the ESV. And I use the NIV, which is for um, um, real intelligent people to read. I can't, I'm so intelligent, I can't think of a good NIV alliteration. So anyway, the, in the ESV, it says, seized with fear. It says the people were seized with fear and they glorified God. And the, so here's a little lesson. The ESV wants to get as close to the words as possible. They want a translation while still giving meaning, so they, they literally translate, seized with fear. And the NIV wants to translate the meaning for you so you understand the meaning of the words, not just the words. And so they interpret the passage and they say, filled with awe. So they go from the fear and they make it in the sense of awe and praise God. That's just a little translation lesson, I suppose. And they say, a great prophet has appeared among us. God has come to help his people. This news about Jesus spread throughout Judea and the surrounding country. I thought to myself, if it were up to us at Community Heights, would the news about Jesus spread? Man, that's that's a hard one, isn't it? Like, Christianity is our culture. It's like it's our culture. It's just what we do. We go to church and like we do certain things because we're supposed to be moral and ethical. But do we talk about Jesus? Do we know him? Do we know him and talk about him to people so that they're like, oh, wow, Jesus. You know what? And I said this to our church in Orange City, so I'm not changing my tune. I don't want people to say, oh, wow, Community Heights. I want them to say, oh, wow, Jesus. Because that's what we're about. And when people say, oh, wow, Jesus, the score takes care of itself. We don't have to worry about what they say about Community Heights. Because we want to point people to Jesus. And that's what happened 
when Jesus raised this guy from the dead. There's not any greater miracle, right? I mean, there's a funeral, and Jesus walks in and raises the guy from the dead. I mean, he resuscitated him because he's going to die again. Maybe that's what he said. But Jesus, like, what are you doing? Now I got to die again. It's bad enough I died once, now I got to die twice. So what do we notice in the passage? This mother was a widow. The dead man was her only son. The funeral was already in progress. We notice Jesus' compassionate heart for her. And it was a truly remarkable miracle. And, it, and it's one of the things that Luke uses to further reveal who Jesus is. So quickly, let's ask the questions. What, what, what's it say? It says, Jesus healed a centurion servant, and he resuscitated a widow's son. That was the passage. Well, what's it mean? Well, Luke is filling out his reader's understanding of just who Jesus is, and he's selecting these specific accounts. That's worthy of some thought. Why did he pick these, these accounts? Jesus is not just a great prophet, but the prophet Moses spoke about. And the people at the end of the passage of verses, uh, in verse 17, they start to realize that. They start to say that God is visiting us. This is, something's going on here. This guy just brought somebody back from being dead. So now, how does it affect me? And th- so I have two things here. First, how is our faith compared with the centurions? Do we understand this thing about authority? Do we understand the place that Jesus holds? Especially from Philippians chapter 2, where it says, because of his obedience unto death, God exalted him and gave him a name that's above every name. So do we understand Jesus' authority? Based on that authority, who he is, and that helps our faith. And then, do we view all people the same, like Jesus does? What's our compassion quotient? Is our compassion high? Are we looking to move up so that we can serve more? Or are we looking to move up so that we can be more served? And then, what's the bottom line? The bottom line is, how do we see or view others? And how will we treat others? And will the heart of Jesus impact our life priorities? This is so important. If our Christian life consists of we go to church and we're good, that's not enough. That's not enough. That's not being a follower of Jesus. The heart of Jesus should impact our life priorities. We should reprioritize our lives based on the heart of Jesus. That's, that's some homework there. That's some stuff to think about. And, and then I, I always refer back to my boxes, but are we motivated by love or by self? Because if we have the heart of Jesus, we're motivated by love. If we don't, we're motivated by self. And sometimes I think about this stuff. I think about this kingdom life, this kingdom life that tells us to give up, to give up and to surrender and to serve, and that that will be significant. And we think, we don't really like that. That should be like once in a while we'll do our thing and we'll give up a little and we'll serve a little, we'll be a little kingdom-minded, but it's not really something I like. And I thought about this when when I was yesterday at my grandson's first birthday. So he was one year old yesterday. And they put this really delicious, tasty cake down in front of him. And he just was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, uh. Mm. He did not want to put those hands in his mouth. 
as soon as he touched it, he had the texture, and, and, and that's the, like, the best part of the face that he was making. They caught it at, a, at kind of a normal face. But he was grimacing, and he just, and it's like, it's good. Just taste it. Taste it. It's really good. And I finally told his mother, I said, just, just put your finger, just put it in his mouth. He'll like it. He'll like it. And you know what? He, go to the next picture. He didn't really like it. It got on his mouth, and he still wasn't really cottoning to this thing. And I thought about this, and I thought, this is a lot like us when it comes to kingdom life. We just think, oh, I just don't want to get involved in this kingdom life. I don't want to serve. I don't want it to, be, I don't want it to not be about me. And if we would just, just taste it, it's really good. The cake is good. It's like perfect consistency and moisture content, and it's got great blue frosting on it that'll make your lips nice and blue. It's real tasty. It could be a lot of fun. But we're like, no, 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 no. You know what? The kingdom life, Jesus' life, the kingdom heart, Jesus' heart, it's really good. Just taste it. In fact, there should be a verse somewhere that says, you know, something like, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. That would be a great, that would be a great verse. So, Let me remind you, in the Gospels, Jesus puts on a clinic for us about how to wield power and authority. We're to use it for others to serve. He served the slave of the outsider. Think about it. Jesus healed the pariah's slave, the outsider's slave. He raises the widow's dead son. We use it for others to serve. Jesus uses power for others. We empower the powerless. We deliver the captive. Speak for the voiceless. Care for the widows and orphans. And accept the foreigner and the outcast. And if it sounds like it's the same message, it is. It's the same one. Because it's the message about Jesus. And unless you're willing to be here for one day, and we go through all 24 chapters in Luke in like 12 hours... It's just going to be the same message for a while. It's this kingdom message, this kingdom message of life and service that Jesus wants us to adopt because then we truly live. Then we truly live. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that in this passage we learn about your heart, that you would look at this poor widow about to bury her only son and her only chances at a respectful um, uh, way of carrying on her life and, and receiving care and food and shelter, and that you would step in and that your heart would go out to her. And you weren't there, Lord, to, be a, a, to do a show before these two big crowds, but your heart went out to her and you told her not to cry. Lord Jesus, you told her not to cry, and you gave her her son back. And your heart is huge, God. I pray that you would give us your heart for people, that we would love like you love, that we would see people the way you see people, that we would serve like you serve, and that we would humble ourselves so that you yourself could exalt us. So Lord, this week as we go out, I pray that you would help us to utilize our gifts and the power that you've enabled us with to serve and to love others. And so to allow your kingdom and your will to be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We 
pray these things in Jesus' name.